Hello. Today on the Loopcast, I have Kevin Harris, and we are discussing um, the intersection of the economy and political mobilization in Iran. So Kevin is the author of um, a new report out on voter behavior and political mobilization in Iran, and he's also the author of A Social Revolution, Politics and the Welfare State in Iran. We wanted to have this conversation um, because if you're following the protests in Iran, and either through the Loopcast or um, elsewhere, you, you've noticed that the economy is being mentioned a lot and plays is playing a big role in, in sort of um, in these protests. But what we wanted to do today was dig a little deeper because um, Iran's economy, like most economies, is is complex and especially when you start relating the economy to people's daily lives, to people's social lives, and then ultimately to political expression, either as voting or protest. So please welcome Kevin Harris. So I want to start off with um, just just a basic question, which is, in, in your view, uh, what has caused these protests, these latest rounds of protests, to start? Thank you, Sina, for having me on. Uh, I am a sociologist by training, so I just want to give the listeners a caveat that I will sound sociological, which means that a lot of the just-so stories which have been presented both by, you know, kind of experts, Iran experts, journalists, other scholars, too, about the causes of the protests in Iran, I may have a throw some... Uh, some spanners in there because you know people who study social movements and revolutions and large-scale mobilization tend to know tend to argue and, and know that you know the persistence of grievances alone don't cause huge protest waves like the way we just saw in Iran and listeners should realize that uh, over the past two weeks um, a protest has occurred in more than 80 cities in Iran uh, and maybe 100 cities total, but at least 80, uh, and of course in some cities more than one. Uh, there's the breadth, not the depth, but the breadth of the geographical scale of the protests uh, is the widest that Iran has seen since the 79 revolution. So geographically far more wider than 2009, the Green Movement, which uh, I actually saw with my own eyes. I was living in Iran 2009-2010, so I saw the, the Green Movement, at least a part of it, um, which did not spread very far beyond the capital. So this is a, it's a huge wave. And uh, protest waves don't just occur because people have grievances. If there were grievances, that uh, grievances alone cause protests, then we would be seeing protests basically every day all around the world. We're probably living in a huge conflagration. We're close, certainly, but we're not there yet. So social scientists who study you know, mobilization, protest, and uh, large-scale upsurges, uh, you know, know and also try to argue that you know, there has to be other types of mobilizing factors that are involved uh, when one sees this kind of thing occur. So anybody who's out there saying the, the protests were caused by grievances are missing an important link, a more important step. You know, grievances don't cause protests. Other things cause them. Uh, groups showing up and mobilizing over a particular grievance, but they have to be able to mobilize. Uh, communication between groups with other groups or individuals. And uh, I do have to admit, we actually know very little after these two weeks of this process of, of mobilizing spread. 
So, you know, there was a protest in Mashhad, uh, a large city, not a small city. This is this idea that Iran, these Iran protests are happening in villages and small cities. Uh, while technically true, it's not really the main story. The main story is that basically the largest cities in Iran in the, in the periphery, in the provinces outside of Tehran, Mashhad, Qom, Afwaz, Isfahan, you know, uh, have, are, having large, are having protests. And so Mashhad is a large city, the second largest city in Iran. That's where it started. Uh, and we don't know too much about the original protests. Many people have claimed, including politicians in Iran, have claimed that the other side started it. So the, some conservative politicians, uh, you know, as they often do, kind of hold protest rallies, officially recognized that are kind of mm, pro-former rituals. This one seemed to get out of hand, if that was the case, although I haven't seen definitive evidence, by the way, that this was a top-down occult rally. In fact, um, there was an interview in Sharg uh, uh, newspaper, the Sharg Daily, a few days ago, that the interview itself had taken place on December 28th. It was just published recently. And in the interview, it's the interview with the mayor of Mashhad, mayor of Mashhad, uh, who's a, you know, kind of a center-right guy, technocrat. And um, the interview goes on about running Mashhad and how, how the grievances of the people and the management's going badly. And at some point in the interview, the, the journalist actually writes in the interview how, at this point, we are now hearing protests outside, and the mayor goes to the window and is watching them and getting calls on the phone from his advisors saying, what the hell's going on? There's nothing in that interview, by the way, which uh, gives evidence that the mayor knew this protests were going to happen. So I just want to call to question the idea that this was all conservative uh, mobilization gone wrong. But that being said, um, uh, there were economic demands raised at that, economic demands more broadly. Also, you know, as they spread, not only on that day alone, that day alone there were protests in, in eastern Iran, uh, places like Nishapur. But by the next day, December 29th, which happened to be my birthday, so I ended up spending most of my birthday online, um, it had spread, protests had spread to the west of the country and basically leapfrogged Tehran. Uh, so middle-sized cities in the western part of the country. And we actually know very little about how that first jump occurred. By the third day, fourth day, yeah, it was, uh, it, the world media attention was on these. But the protests had been covered already by local media, by obviously many online sources. So we actually we don't know so much about why. But one thing I can tell from watching the videos and again, there have been many, many videos released, uh, put online uh, during this period. These are things that ended up on news in the West, on BBC Persian, um, retweeted by some of the journalists that you've had on your show, uh, not necessarily truthfully all the time, but put online. But one thing we've seen is that it's pretty amazing. Um, most of them happened if, by the second day. They, they, they essentially were allowed to happen in the sense of, the response was crowd control, not suppression. And I and people lost fear. You know, this also happened in 2009, that once people lost that kind of palpable sense of fear, other people were doing it, right? Like, I could see my friend doing, my friend was going, there's an old lady in the street protesting, why not me, you know? And so there's this kind of cascading effect that occurred, and people lost fear. They went out, and people were chaining slogans, throw the bums out, very uh, kind of political slogans joined in, and it became, it became this pattern, uh, and it got bigger and bigger and bigger, far wider than anybody had predicted, but any of the protesters had realized, uh, and then has peaked, uh, arguably, 
and has now uh, is now kind of petering out. But in a scale of it, uh, it is historic and should be registered and stuff as stuff uh, as such. And I assume that uh, people like you and me will be uh, discussing and debating it for a long time to come. So I want to maybe uh, switch footing just a little and and start looking at the economy because I, I know that like to your point that people don't mobilize based simply on grievances, but it, it almost seems like you know the economy is playing a lot into into either mobilizing people, either forming a set of complaints, or you know. I, I, I don't know how to like sort of conceptualize it, but it almost seems like when you read through people's accounts of why they protest, it's, you know, it, it seems like, oh, we can't afford chicken, we can't afford um, daily staples, and, you know, and they look to the government and, and sort of see them as the basis of, their, of, of that economic woe. So I want to maybe st- start digging into sort of Rouhani's sort of economic policies and budgetary sort of priorities. I mean, um, I think when the protests first started, there was there was this line of argument saying that um, actually a leak of, if I understand it correctly, of Rouhani's budget, which sort of detailed, if, I, if, I, if I'm translating it correctly and understanding it correctly, sort of detailed how much government funds go into um, religious organizations, religious institutions. So, I mean, you know, let's just start off with what are what is Rouhani's sort of outlook and sort of budgetary and economic policies? Okay, well, let's clarify, first of all, what I was trying to say about grievances and protests. Of course, people, when they protest, say, if you ask them why you're protesting, they give a set of reasons. But grievances in Iran, like in most parts of the world, are kind of always there. When I was in Iran in 2009, 2010, high inflation. Lots of people said, I can't afford this, I can't afford that. Uh, in the late 90s, there were also grievances. There's been grievances, basically grievances are omnipresent. So thinking about if you want to ascribe a cause to a grievance, that's the problem. Not the fact that people have grievances, of course they do. But grievances alone never can explain protests because you would just see them all the time. You would see things on, on fire if, if grievances alone do it. Once people mobilize, and there's a variety of ways that him, you have to get people together. Sometimes somebody has to lead. Sometimes an organization forms. It seems like in many ways uh, social media has formed a de facto organizing t- uh, structure for these protests. Nevertheless, some individuals run those uh, online groups. Other ones belong. So those have to be understood. Not you know the, the grievances alone, while they occupy the content of of what people claim they're protesting about, although those can change, by the way, during the act of protest themselves. People's grievances change. That happens all the time in many, many social movements. Uh, it can alone be grievances that cause, cause movements. I just wanted to make that point clear. Okay, In that sense, that's why the economy is an interesting subject, because I would say like the current reporting on Iran in the West is a bit, um, well, Rouhani kind of did what the West was always calling for, you know, like the Wall Street Journal, which now claims that it's the failed banks and things that caused the protests. Well, the Wall Street Journal has been calling for austerity budgets in Iran, privatization of the public sector, uh, a removal of so-called cash handouts. Although these are not handouts, 
There's a large cash transfer program in Iran that many oil countries are uh, encouraged to, to engage in by the IMF and the World Bank, and Iran began to engage in removing subsidies on gasoline at the pump and instead putting money in directly into people's pockets, like a kind of UBI, universal basic income kind of scheme, although you know not a annual income, but enough, it was interesting. And yet the West called it cash handouts because for some reason they only see Iran through the lens of populism, of poor people being duped by the state, of the conservatives being able to control individuals through oil income. This is why I wrote a whole book about the welfare state in Iran, by the way. Now, they claim, I mean, many Western journalists say, oh, no, 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 the poor people were never duped by the state. They're mad they want to overthrow the Islamic Republic. Well, which, way, which one was it? I mean, I think the way that Iran was read previously by, you know, our, our collective expertise uh, in the United States was misguided and assumed that linkages between the state and individuals meant that those individuals were under the control of the state, especially in smaller towns, towns that journalists had never been to, frankly, including many Iranian journalists had never been to because Iranian journalists hang out in Tehran, just like in the United States they hang out in New York and Washington and, you know, some in, in L.A., so I, I am always first of all skeptical about the, the rereading of Iran now. Oh, it was a powder keg waiting to blow up when previously, in fact, Rouhani and his government were trying to accomplish many of the, uh, if you want to call them reforms or policy changes, that, that journalists in the West, dissidents in the West, had long been calling for. And what were these? You know, how, what's one way that governments bring down inflation? There was a 40% inflation when Rouhani took over. Well, cut state spending. That's what they thought would do it, cut state spending. And they did, and they did. Uh, what else? Uh, to essentially uh, broaden the tax base of the country so that more revenue is going to the state and the informal economy is shrunk. Well, they tried to do this. And, in fact, one of the ways they did this was to make every – credit institution in the country register itself with the central bank. And under Ahmadinejad, all of these new banks had popped up. You know, I mean, the inflation rate was high, so the uh, central bank's interest rate was high. And you could make, you know, 30% interest by putting your money in the bank. Of course, the inflation rate was also high. So there was this arbitrage game that went along in Iran for years about how people could make money off of money. And, you know, a huge, a huge industry got spawned out of this where middle-class people would keep their money in the bank. I mean, I have many friends in Iran who just keep their money in the bank. So lots of Ponzi schemes popped up. This is also happening, happened in China over the last uh, few years as well. Ponzi schemes popping up, people promising higher interest rates, and the state was trying to regulate them and, and, and actually shut down many of them, but there's thousands of them. And that was a reform, or if you want to call it policy change, that you know, Western economists and critics of the of the Islamic public had long called for privatization of the public sector. Uh, the Iranian government stopped in its tracks the the pseudo privatization of the public sector that had been going on under the Ahmadinejad regime, where large profitable segments of the public sector, like steel, like um, like cement were essentially handed over to segments of the parastatal economy, whether it was big pension funds that the state owed money to, military cooperatives, uh, religious institutions, you name it, or public banks. I've, been, I've looked into these things quite, quite in detail. The Rouhani government, for better or for worse, stopped this process and tried to get it under control. And then when they tried to sell off 
parts of the public sector that were not doing so well to hope that the private sector would revitalize them. Nobody wanted to buy them. Not surprising. This also happened in the 1990s. But when you privatize companies, what happens? And when you, ha when you privatize companies as per the demands of, uh, you know, Western critics, of course, the critics in Iran as well, well, you have to shrink employment because costs are high. So people get fired. Wages don't get paid. Um, you know, people's pensions are in, in danger of being cut, right? So you can, I mean, there are a lot of people now who say, oh, this is neoliberalism, this is Rouhani's neoliberalism. I don't really like to use that word because it, anything can be neoliberalism today. Uh, the, you know, me, my pro, this program, everything, you know, it's a term of the catch-all. So instead, you know, concretely, the most interesting thing is that a lot of the, what it claimed is causing the protest today, a lot of these things were, were policies that were being attempted to put forward by the Rouhani government since 2013. Specifically, uh, you know, 2000, they hoped that the 2015 negotiations with the West would give them power to push forward these even more. On the budget issue, you know, again, in the budget that the government releases every year in Iran, everybody knows that they give money to these parastatal institutions, uh, defense institutions, religious institutions, cultural institutions, huge amount of money for purposes of basically cultural production and who knows what else. Uh, there's no, I mean, there, the, the leak was that the budget got released early and then Rouhani specifically talked about that in a speech before the protests. But to say that that trickled down to somebody in the street, I'm not so sure. I mean, you know, the, the, here's what's really going on, Sina. I mean, the the media environment in Iran since 2013 has become actually a bit more open than it was previously. We have to remember that with the election of Rouhani, uh, the reformists and whatever, you know, whatever groups of, of politicians in Iran you want to call them uh, or call the left or center left today, uh, got back into the state. People who had been out of the government for, for years, for basically a decade under Ahmadinejad, got back in. They said, aha, we're finally going to get to do what we tried to do in the 90s, reform uh, the economy, um, you know, re-engage with the West, and they've been trying. Um, at, at the same time, the media environment opened up a bit more, uh, partly thanks to this, you know, the 2013 election. And what happened in the media since 2013? Well, uh, everybody has been accusing each other of corruption. Like, if you read any, and the right-wing press, the, the business press, the center-left press in Iran, which I don't think many Western journalists read Persian, or if they do, they don't follow Iranian news. They have stringers and stuff like that. You know, it's amazing how much the discourse of corruption has been around, floating around in the media. I mean, it's amazing. So for me, it's not surprising that everyone in Iran thinks the government's corrupt. Politicians themselves have been screaming at each other for the last four years, saying that you're corrupt, no, you're corrupt, no, you're corrupt, and it's your fault that the promised land hasn't arrived yet. So, um, you know, the economy is one thing, and the political economy is, I've tried to lay out that, you know, like it or not, the, some of the shifts in distribution of income of the, the benefits of growth, Iran has been growing the last couple of years, but the benefits of that growth have been unevenly distributed. Uh, 
That's one thing. But that's that alone, no, no, no one themselves is going to know that, aha, I'm, I'm not receiving the benefits of economic growth compared to someone sitting in Tehran. They, you know, they can perceive it in their gut, perhaps, but they're not going to, the data themselves isn't going to get them in the street. It's because of people talking to each other, hearing stories about you know, who's to blame in the country. It's the buildup of that that I would say is a much more understandable um, set of grievances, which then when finally mobilized upon, although not finally is the wrong word, there have been many, many protests in Iran over the last four years uh, over economic issues, environmental issues, social issues. But, you know, in this particular wave, it's the fact that, ah, someone's going to get mashed and nothing really happened to them. They went all went home. And they went out again the next day. We're going out too, right? And they, they saw it, heard it, tried it out, it worked, and that wave spread. Interesting. So then, I'm sort of curious, um, you touched on the discourse of corruption and sort of, you know, the press, sort of everybody's lobbying, everybody's lobbying, you know, you're corrupt, oh no, you're corrupt, accusations at each other. I, I wonder if we can explore that a bit and, and sort of where do we fit in the protests in larger factional disputes within Iran? Because I think there was a, a rumor going around at the beginning of the protests, that um, that a conservative religious figure in Mashhad sort of the rumor was that he sparked it, sparked the protests, or had mobilized some people to protest based on the fact that it was it was going to be used as a, an attack on the Rouhani budget or on an attack on sort of Rouhani himself and. If you could, like, where do we fit in factional politics? I mean, I, I think in your paper you write that there's no, there's no parties in Iran. There's no political parties. There's no Republican or Democrat. There's only factions. And so if you could just sort of enlighten us a bit. <laughs> hmm. Okay. Well, you know, the word for intellectual in Iran is, is Roshan Fek, which essentially means enlightened thought. They, you know, Iranian intellectuals coined a, I mean, they coined a word for themselves to describe themselves about you know 120 years ago. So, so the enlightened is a fine word, although intellectual is a different word, and I mean, I'm probably not one of those because that carries weighty connotations. Um, okay, so that that story didn't just come out from nowhere, by the way. It's an example of what I'm talking about: the story about conservatives uh, and the Mashhad Imam Reza Shrine itself organizing the protests in Mashhad, which then got out of hand. Who told that story? The vice president of Hassan Rouhani, Ishak Shahangari. He said it, he said it a couple of days later and said, you guys tried to ride the tiger, and now it's out of control, and it's your fault uh, that this is going on, and the, and the, and the consequences will, you will have to bear. All right? So already the, facts, the, the politicians of Iran started to fight over this. Now, is this new? Absolutely not. Uh, the perception in the West is that protests in Iran never happens, that it's a totalitarian state, that everyone's being watched, that no one, is, no one ever pushes back against the state except through um, subaltern methods like, you know, wearing makeup and buying pop music. This is totally, I mean, this is just our, our weird fantasy of Iran. I don't know why, you know, we're obsessed with Iranian women and their, and their sartorial ways. This is just... You know, I know many, many women in Iran who have told me the last thing I care about is hijab. I care about lots of other things, and then I also care about hijab and sartorial issues. 
But you know, I have other interests that people outside Iran should ask me about sometime, but we never do. So, uh, protests in Iran have been going on since 1979. And, uh, in fact, inside Iran, people remember these, you know. In the in the 1993, there were protests in poor neighborhoods in some of the large cities in Iran, like Mashhad. Of course, there were many protests in Iran in the 90s. Uh, there's always been uh, um, kind of, you know, both spontaneous and otherwise uh, protest over economic issues. And, and in fact, I'm about to put out a piece in the Washington Post, uh, co-written with a student of mine, who's been tracking labor unrest in Iran since 2009, incidences of labor unrest, workers protesting over wages, uh, over independent trade associations, over um, uh, non-payment of benefits. And, you know, surprise, surprise, since 2013, every year, the number of documented labor protests have been going up in Iran, uh, probably partly because of the opening. The opening is a bit more room to protest. Second, because I think also uh, maybe the, 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 the uh, economic situation began to shift. How, but um, the ratio of those protests of the provinces to Tehran, so basically everywhere but Tehran to Tehran, the ratio has gone up. So more and more and more of these protests are happening outside of Tehran. So the idea that somebody living in, I don't know, Ahwaz or, you know, a mid-sized city in Iran. And mid-sized cities in Iran, people should understand, are not villages. They're 250,000, uh, 500,000 a million. It's true that there were some protests of the, in, in towns the size of, you know, 20,000. True. Uh, but that's because there's been so many protests, you can find a city of any size that there's been a protest in. So that, so there's been um, uh, actually slowly building a labor wave, if you want to call it that, that if anybody in the West was ever bothered to look, now they all see it. As you're just like in 2011 in Egypt and Tunisia, once we looked back, we saw there was a building of protests. But it took a huge revolution, like in Tunisia, for us to realize that. Well... It was going on in Iran. And what happens when protests in Iran kind of build and then kind of break out in waves big enough that the state doesn't know what to do, that politicians themselves don't know what to do? It has an effect. It matters. And it's mattered over the 40 years of the Islamic Republic. Why does it matter? Well, yeah, it doesn't cause a revolution, so some people say the protests are useless. But what it does do is it cracks open the uh, coalitions of elite competition in Iran. And, um, and, of course, elites do compete in Iran. They don't all agree on lots of things. They fight over who has uh, po uh, positions in particular state institutions, who gets control over resources, who gets to make the laws, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And these factions are not set in stone. There are no parties in Iran. Iran is one of the weird post-revolutionary cases, perhaps the only post-revolutionary case of a social revolution where a single party state does not dominate, right? So think about the Cuban Revolution, the Chinese Revolution, Sandinistas even, to keep one from 79, all ended up with a single-party state. And didn't happen in Iran. They tried in the early 80s. There was a party. It was disbanded by the members themselves. And now you have a loose associations of politicians who uh, they sometimes call themselves as part of factions or associations, but they don't act like parties in, in, in the sense of the European-style party with a membership that votes for leaders, right? Um, 
So in that sense, at, at the times of elections, that's when things kind of start acting like parties and actually try to mobilize people, and we write about that in a report. But when protests happen, the lines, alliances, uh, and cleavages between many of these factions, associations, or groups of politicians are reshuffled, broken down. Um, in fact, many, as, as different politicians attempt to jockey, over both, maybe sometimes they want to take credit for the protests or accuse the other people, as we've just seen, of causing the protests or uh, uh, of, of their policies spurring the protests. Well, that's a way of doing politics in Iran. So if I had to make a prediction, although social scientists don't like to predict, if I had to make a prediction, I would say that the effect of these protests would be similar to what had happened in 2009. And what happened in 2009 is the huge green movement protests in the center of Tehran, which nobody could ignore, cracked open the, 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 the narrowed factional groupings that had taken over the Iranian state, basically because the conservatives and the new right, the old conservatives, you know, people like uh, not only the leader himself, Khamenei, but, but Larry Johnny, uh, the Speaker of the Parliament, and many others, but also the new right, people like Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. This is a very narrow set of the elite that had kicked out or purged a lot of the uh, previous politicians who actually helped to run Iran. Those guys came back in 2013, partly thanks to the Green Movement and the fact that the factional divides were unsettled. Well, I bet that's going to happen again. And as the kind of, in the aftermath of the protest, as all these different politicians blame each other and attempt to both take advantage of, create new coalitions around, uh, and mobilize on uh, the clear, you know, the clear scale uh, and power of these protests, well, I, I think that the, you know, the, the, as usual, the kind of divides that, that we outside of Iran come up with to describe ideological differences among the elites in Iran are probably going to have to be rewritten once again. Interesting. So you mentioned, like, a, when we discuss sort of blue-collar or labor politics in Iran, how does that work into the larger political factions? Do we assume that you know that that sort of blue collar working class politics is religious in origin? Is it not religious? Because you know we keep hearing this meme that that these protests are middle. It's a middle class and working class uprising. It's sort of you know uh, repeated ad nauseum. But you you know my my question is how do you know, how do you relate workers and the middle class into this faction? Because it seems like, you know, my, my frame of reference would be the United States. And you think, oh, you know, people in small towns and provinces vote Republican or they vote sort of center of right Democrats. So, you know, how do we how do we sort of organize and think about Iran in this respect? Yeah, that's a good question. And that's one of the reasons why my colleague and I uh, um, fielded this large survey in Iran in 2016 after the parliamentary elections there, where we asked individuals, you know, um, not only who did they vote for for president in 2013, when Hassan Rouhani ran against uh, numerous conservative candidates, but we also asked people, you know, uh, in the parliamentary elections, that the candidate or the candidates you vote for belong to a specific faction or group. And we found very interesting things out of that data. By the way, no one's ever done a survey like this in Iran. 
And for, instead, what really happen, what usually happens is, is people outside of Iran have reproduced the language of the politicians in Iran themselves. So if politicians in Iran claim that they're the middle-class candidate, we assumed outside that the middle class was voting for them. Or if the politician in Iran claimed that he or she was the candidate of the poor, of the dispossessed, then we outside of Iran assumed that that was true. In no other country would this be a valid mode of analysis, but for some from reason on Iran, we believe what politicians say, even though we claim that we're very critical of them. So, um, you know, I, I, the older I get, the more skeptical I am of, of claims like these. And I'm like, you know, we need evidence about this. Where's the evidence that poor people vote for conservatives in Iran and middle-class people vote for reformists or, or more liberal candidates? So in the survey, we, we took a look by income levels, by education levels, and, you know, each election turns out to be very different. Uh, there is no huge conservative base in the poor in the more provincial parts of the country, at least not in 2016 and 2013. Basically, it splits right down the middle. About half of all these different groups vote for, voted for Rouhani in 2013, and about half of them, meaning like half of the poor, if you want to call it that, and then half of the, and the other half voted for the other candidates. And it, they don't differ that much from anybody else at that, at that election. In other elections, I bet you it was different. Why? Because Iran is a normal country that we should look at normally as opposed to a country where half of the population is supposed to be doing one thing all the time, youth, educated, wealthier, urban, and the other half is supposed to be doing the other thing all the time. I mean, this is almost like a cartoon, and yet this is the cart caricature that we have used to describe Iranian politics without any evidence, by the way, for the last 20 years. So, you know, one of the reasons we did this survey is to try to get uh, you know, just a basic picture uh, of, of reality uh, in voting patterns in Iran. And people who are interested can take a look at this report from the European Iran Research Group, uh, Voter Behavior and Political Mobilization in Iran. And we're going to be doing more reports based on uh, this data. So I just wanted to lay that out, that, that you know, I, I, I've been, personally, obviously, I sound... Like I have grievances over this, over the study of Iran, and eventually I realized instead of just complaining about it, we should do something about it. So we spent two years playing the survey, implementing it, and now we are releasing the results to the to the public. So that that um, that's one issue. The other issue is the issue of class. Okay, so class. I'm a sociologist. We claim to we claim to study you know issues of class. Um, so class. You know, in a place like Iran, it's difficult to get at. So I, I've been reading a lot about the, you know, the uh, this is a revolt of the uh, subaltern, of the of the uh, unwashed masses of the working class. Well, how do we know that? How do we really know that? Watching a video of a protest in a country, how do you know what class that person is? I've watched a lot of these videos, and I tell you what, I've lived in some of these cities. I've, I I have lived outside of Tehran. I've lived in other uh, provincial cities. And I've gone to any of these squares that you can see the protests occur in. How do you know that these people are working class? People in, people don't dress like they dress in Tehran. You know, people dress a bit differently. Actually, every town kind of has its own mode of dress. So uh, when you see old ladies in, in chadors in uh, a protest, to me, that doesn't mean that this is not a youth uh, revolutionary movement. It means the families are in the protest. 
If an old lady can come, the whole family's there. Trust me. Uh, and it's true that the young, that the people who've been arrested have largely been young. But I tell you, that's almost the case for every protest in the world. Who goes up and yells at a cop? It's a young guy. Who goes up and throws a rock or attempts to burn something or tear down a flag? It's usually a young guy. That doesn't mean that the composition of the protesters is the same composition as the number as the people who are arrested. This is like a basic thing that any grad student, uh, I tell you, seen any grad student in university or even an undergrad would learn this, but yet it can be reported uh, basically in the news today as obvious. Oh, this is just young people under 25. No, take a look at the video. There's old people in the streets. There's old people in the streets, middle-aged people. So one is, a, one is an age issue. The other is a class issue. How do you know? Uh, it, you know, I mean, I'd love to do a survey right now and ask people, but, you know, the question is, um, will we get an inter- will we get a answer that, we, that would be useful? But in in 2011, I should say, after the Egyptian and Tunisian revolutions, there was a, field, a survey fielded uh, by the Arab Barometer, which is a big kind of consortium of surveys that run surveys over politics and economics in many Arab countries for the last 15 years. And they just happened to already be running a survey in North Africa in 2011, and the uprisings occurred, the governments, the leaders were toppled in uh, you know the first half of the, of the uh, 2011, and then the survey was going to be fielded in, I think, May. So they added a bunch of questions about protest, and it's very interesting the answers they got. So first they asked, did you protest or not, and uh, did you know any protesters or not, and people said yes, and it opened up a set of questions, and it tried to get the demographics of people who both said they protested and people who said they knew protesters. Of course, many people claimed to protest who didn't after revolutions, because revolutions are exciting things that everyone wants to claim they belong to. Nevertheless, you do get a sense. Who were the types of people who protested in Egypt, for example, in 2011? Government employees were more likely to protest. Uh, uh, it wasn't just the young. It was actually the age didn't matter. Uh, it wasn't the unemployed. It was actually people who were employed that were more likely to protest than others. So, again, this is a relative to the rest of the country. Um, and so, you know, that... that that really called into question the reporting that had been done or just taking a picture of Tahrir Square and thinking that, oh, this is the pro- this other protest writ large, you know? So I, I, I am skeptical unless I really see good evidence about it, um, about, you know, the class composition, if you want to call it, of the protest. To me, the most obvious dynamic is the center-periphery dynamic. You know, the center-periphery dynamic, which is a long dyna- I mean, the dynamic that happens in many, many protest waves over history. Think about France the provinces versus Paris. Um, you know, there's many, many examples of protests all around the world that have this center-periphery dynamic, and I think that this is a good example. You know, Iran, uh, while it has many, many large cities, you know, unlike, let's say, Egypt, which is kind of, the population is concentrated around essentially a river. Uh, you know, in Iran, given the geography, we have cities all around the country. And yet, uh, because of state building in Iran, the, hist- the modern history of Iran, Tehran became the center of both economics, politics, and culture, like Paris. All right? So uh, that, that's a bit of a, a different dynamic than a country like the United States, where uh, the, the cultural center, the political center, and the economic centers are actually different. They're relatively, you know, they're different in, in, in the United States. But, but Iran is more like France, which I mean, Iranians would love to hear. So the center periphery dynamic is real. The center occupies symbolically all of the all of the sources of the grievances: economic, 
whatever grievances we want to claim or have been stated by protesters themselves or people want to impute. Political, obviously. What's the source of all these problems? Well, it's the state, because the state is involved in everything, people assume. And therefore, the state, changing the state or changing people who run the state are going to solve those problems. And, of course, cultural, right? The culture, official culture of the state doesn't represent or doesn't speak to me. So that's, I mean, in many ways, this is, they all conflate in, in these protests, and it's totally understandable because people look at Tehran, and that's what they see. That's what they see. So anyway, that's my long answer to your point, point about class. But I don't think that, that, that you can go, right now say that this is a revolt of the lumpen. I mean, first of all, for people to have, um, let's say, like a job, where they're privatized, or where they, you know, where they lost their job, they already had to have had, 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 had a job. So maybe they were in the public sector. Maybe they were teachers. Maybe they uh, were factory workers. Um, maybe they were civil servants. Well, a civil servant is not a working class position in Iran. A civil servant is a middle class position. So. As far as I say, the only thing I'm really going to, I would ever put money down is that the provincial dynamic, the center periphery dynamic is, is important. But the class dynamic is, I think some of it is us, impu you know, kind of putting on these people our own image of the fact that in the old, you know, 20 years ago, the Islamic Republic relied on a base of illiterate, shoeless peasants. That's the only reason the regime survived. That's what we think outside. And now their base is finally gone, and X, Y, Z is supposed to follow. Well, what if we were wrong 20 years ago? What does that imply for our expectations of the protest today? End of rant. End of rant. <laughs> uh, I'm sort of curious about um, when we think about protest movements or reform movements in Iran. There's we usually, at least in the West, have a strongly associated leader. So in the 90s, we had Khatami in the reform movement. Um, more recently, with the, the Green movement, we had uh, Karubi and, and that associated and those people. And then sort of with this movement, I don't think there's a leader that has come up or anybody that has declared themselves the head of this protest movement or the head of these protests. So in terms of, A, do you see a leadership sort of being uh, created and conceptualized? And, and sort of my second part of that question is, how do these protesters bring their grievances and points to the government? Because I think in sort of a, a book that I've been using and sort of thinking about um, these movements has been uh, Zainab Tefeche's um, Twitter and Tear Gas. And, right. one of, and one of the points she makes is that when you when you organize a movement or a protest with a lot of technology, right, you can you can quickly mobilize people. You can quickly bring up a point. But when it comes to resolution and bringing that point to the government or to whomever you're protesting against, that fails. And I think we're, right. we're kind of seeing this because um, you see that Rouhani sort of has been saying, oh, we understand your political protests, but we are not your, we understand the economic part of your protests, but not the political. And then 
you know, we do another cut and we can see that the head of the security forces is saying, this is unacceptable. Look at the protesters. They're saying we want to overthrow the government. And so my, my question is, I mean, you know, how do you see this movement? Are there leaders and are they, can they bring their sort of their points to the government successfully? Mm. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push back, if you don't mind, a little bit, respectfully. Um, first, just more recently, uh, you know, Rouhani, when he gave he gave a press conference a couple of days ago, or actually gave a speech uh, a couple of days ago uh, with a bunch of people in the audience, he actually said that, that it's not just economics. It is politics. It's about voice. It's about, you know, the fact that people don't think their voices are being heard. He said that because the other side, the conservatives, had already been saying, this, the valid part of the protests are economic. This is a big difference, by the way, from 2009, when nobody in the political establishment and the government itself claimed that any grievances of the protesters were valid. Today, you have all sides of the political establishment saying that at least some of the protests, grievances are valid, and they're all arguing over how, which ones are more valid and how many of them are valid. And Rouhani, again, to, for, for political reasons, I mean, let's be a cynic about it, but let's still, we have to take it seriously as a political move, has now thrown the gauntlet down and said, this isn't just economics, it's your fault for not letting the voices of individuals be heard, and uh, we need to, you know, we need to um, respond in a much more serious way, right? So that is very interesting, and that did not happen in 2009 until much, much, much later when the protests were gone. Now, let me also push back a little bit on the idea that the earlier protest waves were led. Um, there's long been a, uh, you know, many, many Iranian intellectuals have long noted uh, since the revolution that protests start and then leaders then have to figure out what to do with them. This includes, uh, they're, they're kind of the, the famous slum protests of, of 1993, 1994. This includes the uh, civil society movements of 1995-96, which helped to contribute to the election of Mohammed Khatami in 1997. This includes the student movements of 1999 and 2000-2001. The Green Movement itself, I can guarantee, was not led in its first day or two. It was then um, connected with by Musavi, Mir Hossein and Musavi, Mehdi Karabi, who were candidates for president at the time. They tried to ride it. They actually went to the city and go and stood up, and we, you know, many different stories are about how they didn't know what was going on either. So I also do not think that this distinction between the contemporary protest wave in the last two weeks and previous protest waves are that different. Uh, and I bet you, that some political entrepreneur inside Iran or some group will say, "We're the leader of these. We're the leaders of these people. We represent them. Uh, follow us." People will try. People will try to um, to take advantage of protests, and I don't. I mean, advantage in all senses of the term, cynically, but also as well as you know, to redraw the lines of competition in Iran, so that these uh, you know individuals who took part in this or, or sympathized with them may then align themselves with, a, with a, a subgroup or a new faction or a new individual's name uh, that maybe we haven't heard about or maybe it'll be somebody that we already know but all of a sudden changes his or her tune. That happens in Iranian politics a lot. I mean, Rouhani himself is a great example. He was no, you know, 
no moderate 20 years ago, and look at him now. Cynic. I mean, we can, let's just be purely cynical about it. That's political competition in Iran. And when protests happen, they change the dynamics of the competition. They change the lines. They change the uh, the, the boundaries of of uh, of how politics works. Okay. So so that um, that being said, uh, Zainab is right, and Zainab's book builds on a large body of scholarship. Zainab herself is a sociologist. Uh, built on a large body of scholarship, looking at the role of, and I wouldn't just use the word technology. It's not like the cassette wasn't technology in 1979 when Ayatollah Khomeini's lectures were being spread around, right? But the cassette at the time was the vanguard of technology. Um, so, you know, now, that, now in that sense, social media or various online groups may be the vanguard. But we shouldn't have this ahistoric view that first, there was social media, and then everything before that was done by what? Horse and buggy, which also, by the way, is a technology. <laughs> and it's this idea. We're, we're, I mean, these people, we're obsessed with technologies today. It's part of the contemporary moment. We're so obsessed with it, the power of it, that we forget that people lived, lived just with politics, with protest, with spontaneous uprisings, with revolutions before 2005 or whenever people claimed that the technology began. I'm pushing back on you on this point because... I do, uh, I do think this is important. And, you know, Zainab's right, that it may increase the speed through which information travels, but it doesn't ha uh, actually um, tend towards one particular type of outcome or otherwise. Why? Because, uh, like any medium, you know, the media uh, can be facilitating as well as confusing. So, like, you know, I remember in 2009, I was I was uh, looking. It was the first two weeks of the Green Movement, and I was going online to try to figure out where the protest was that day. And I found, you know, a kind of Twitter uh, banner, like a like a like a you know like a like a file or a picture, just like going out the last few weeks online, saying, "Meet at this square this time, half to tier. Meet at half to tier, 4 p.m." So I went there, and about a couple thousand other people were next to me, and there was no protest. We were all looking at each other like, where's the protest? And then somebody got a phone call, like, oh, it's going on on the other side of town, other side of Tehran, which it's not easy to get to the other side of Tehran. So we all went over there, and by the time we got there, the protest was over. So the Internet, in that sense, was not facilitating the uh, aggregation of people into a place to protest. It was actually breaking us all up. I bet you that happened many, many times, by the way, this time around, too. And yet we don't hear about those stories. You don't hear about the protests that fail. There's no video of someone showing up in a square and it's empty. And it's like, oh, by the way, the protests happened. They happened two hours ago, right? But that's, that happens also through this medium. So uh, it, it may or may not, I mean, it may, it may I don't know if it, 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 it encourages leaderlessness. Obviously, individuals coordinate calls for times and places. I mean, we don't live online. We live in the world. So people go to places, they talk, they discuss. You know, so they're, they're, I, I guarantee that there have been other methods of coordinating protests outside of online uh, channels, especially in these, how do you think it happens in these small towns? Like, who, who am I supposed to believe when I see this thing calling for 4 p.m. protest or a 5 p.m. protest in the town I've lived in for 30 years? Am I going to believe that or am I going to call somebody? Am I going to go and talk to somebody? 
I bet you that also happens too, right? And we don't hear about those stories because we are obsessed with the fact that this is some kind of emancipatory medium, but it's not. It does. It, it has all the same problems of previous uh, forms of communication, and maybe a couple extra ones too. So I want to maybe um, draw a comp- an explicit uh, comparison between the um, 2009 Green Movement and what we're seeing today, because I, like just off the top of my head, it's it, and I think you've already pointed to this, which is the Green Movement largely occurred in Tehran. These protests are in, you know, Mashhad, Desful, Ahwaz, smaller cities, and, you know, I hate to say it, less cosmopolitan cities. Um, but, I mean, in your mind as a sociologist, I mean, are you comparing the two? I mean, is there an explicit comparison to be made, and what can we learn from it? Uh, yeah, we always compare. I can't not compare as a sociologist. It's like, unfortunately, it's in my brain. Uh, it's been hardwired, so I'm constantly comparing. But the question is, does, is the comparison valid? So, the cosmopolitan issue. Let me read you a quote from a piece that went on the Washington Post a couple of days ago by a political scientist. I'm not going to give you the person's name because I'm not a big fan at this point. But let me tell you what this person said. As I was reading this this morning, and I got a little bit pissed off. Uh, as available evidence suggests, the unanticipated involvement of small cities is most probably driven by economic grievances. This is the assertion by this political scientist in the Washington Post. In fact, he continues, the protests in small cities are not a struggle for democracy, freedom, or women's rights. Rather, they are the fury of common folk against a stagnant economy and worsening living standards, which in their view originate from the ruling elites mismanagement, corruption, and incompetence. Okay? So you see what just went on in that quote? This is a quote that just came out of an article trying to ascribe a cause to the protest to just unemployment. So in Tehran, you have intellectuals, middle-class people. Oh, they are able to think big. They think in terms of democracy, modernization, beyond themselves. And then you got the rest of the people who only can really respond to material interests. Uh, economic grievances. They don't think about women's rights in the in the provinces. I find this to be incredibly insulting. These people, I mean, this is what people in provinces hate about Tehran. <laughs> I mean, they hate this. Like, you think some there's no intellectuals in Shiraz? Uh, or even a smaller town. You don't think the local uh, corner store grocery manager doesn't understand these things? I mean, I just, I, I, I mean, this is unbelievable. The idea that uh, other people in the rest of the country don't think about these issues. Uh, you know, On the other hand, you can't then therefore say that, oh, because this is going on, therefore the provinces are calling for, everyone in the provinces want to overthrow the government. No, that's also a bit far-fetched, and you know, it's an uncertain moment. But uh, this, this is the center-periphery dynamic that I am actually mentioning to you, that somebody, in ter- somebody who's Teruni, and this guy, certainly whether he grew up in Tehran or not, is acting like it. It's telling the rest of the country what they're actually what they're protesting about, as opposed to listening to them. And I'm just like, this is this is t- I mean, this is the this is the example of the hubris of Iranian intellectuals, which goes back you know 200 years. I mean, Iranian intellectuals. This is why I don't want to be called one. Is because they're famous for telling everybody else what's wrong with them, 
why they're the problem, why the country hasn't reached X modernity, wealth, whatever, right? And in fact, intellectuals always do this all around the world. And journalists too. Journalists, I think, would be occupying the category of intellectuals in this sense, like as a social position. Journalists inside Iran, journalists outside of Iran. So, you know, I don't know. If the takeaway point from this interview is that I'm claiming I don't know a lot about these because, um, you know, I'm unwilling to put put uh, words into the mouths uh, and, and, and motivations into the brains of a lot of people who have done very, you know, very took part in a very powerful and historic protest wave in Iran. It's because I know that intellectuals world historically and in Iran have done this for a long time. And have retroactively oftentimes told us that, oh, this is really about this, and I'm the person who's going to let you know what the real meaning was. And, you know, I don't think there's a single meaning to this. It's a complex process. Everybody's, you know, people taking part, losing their fear, uh, going outside, or maybe that, you know, they've taken part in a protest previously, and now the opportunity arose again. You know, it should be admitted that while there's been a lot of arrests, uh, the last number that we heard was 4,000 people all around the country, there has not been a Tiananmen-style, like, crackdown. This is what many outside observers constantly predict in Iran, that if there's protests, you're going to have a Tiananmen-style, just like, you know, Lale Square-style, like in the mythology of the revolution, Lale Square-style, where just, you just massacre everyone in a square. That didn't happen this time. And while there have been deaths, certainly, you know, there have been deaths, uh, given the scale of the protests, I think we're all a bit surprised about the repression um, dynamics which have happened here. And I think, again, we should be a bit humble about what's happened, because I, I, I'm not so sure that, that you know, that, I mean, depending on what you read online, either the, the police were scared or the IRGC, you know, is always in control, but just let it happen a bit. I don't know. You know, these are all these are all ex post factos from Iranian on a computer telling us what the, what probably is happening. I, mean, I never, I don't trust any of these people. This is just everybody in Iran has an opinion on everything. Come on, okay. So here in L.A., like there are Iranians uh, who are engineers, who are shop clerks, that are now going around on the radio giving speeches about what the protests are all about. How do they know? So, I uh, I think this repression dynamic is actually very interesting probably has something to do at least with, again, the, the, a lot of political competition in the state. And, and somebody told the, told the security apparatus to hold the reins, uh, certainly in the first couple of days. So, so that, that, those are all things that I think you know, should give us pause and, 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 and make us rethink, as hopefully a lot of the things I've said, make us rethink our, our accounts um, and understandings of, kind of state-society relations, uh, the political establishment in Iran, what are they doing, where are they going to go? Uh, but also, let's make one more point clear. The, you know, the model of economic reform that the Rouhani government was engaging in was probably never going to work. And this was the model that was being called for, by the way, by Western journalists, by Iranian critics in the West, uh, and by, you know, sort of... Um, Many, many people, and they're today. They say, I mean, "Isn't it interesting?" I'm just, we should make this point. Like, okay, what happens? You know, you want to you want to cut cash, so-called handouts. I prefer the term cash transfers. That's a neutral term. Handouts is a is a pejorative term. That means that people who get them are somehow undeserving. It's a classic distinction between deserving and undeserving poor. It, the term handout should not be used by a self-respecting journalist. 
but yet it's used all the time, only on Iran. It's not used elsewhere. Okay, so cutting uh, cash transfers, privatizing the state, uh, and just hoping that the private sector takes it up. You have to guarantee profits for private sector if they're going to do it. Otherwise, they're going to keep keep their money in the real estate and in the places they've been making money since 1979, basically building high rises and all these kind of things. That's a huge. That's a huge thing. There's no, by the way, guarantee that the private sector will pick up pick up that growth. And of course, the Iranian government knows that. So the model that there's some kind of Foreign capital, private sector rejuvenation that's going to actually generate employment, huge employment to absorb all the uh, young people in the labor force. It's going to generate the 7 8% growth that everybody thinks is the magic number in Iran. This is, this is very odd. I mean, even if it happened, it would have been 10, 15 years in the making. So you know, there's no chance of this really working. And uh, so we will see, actually, how the different segments of the political elite deal with that, the fact that this model... Whether it was, of course, some people always claim, oh, they just didn't get the model. It was the IRGC or the military which prevented them. Uh, that's all we said in any country. Oh, if they just really finally, really would have engaged in it, it would have worked out. I'm skeptical knowing what we know about Latin America and Eastern Europe in the 1990s. Uh, everybody there also said, oh, the reason we're not rich like Switzerland is because we really didn't do the model. Well, in many cases, the model was done pretty well. So so we'll see. You know, in the Ryan case, uh, you know, a lot of the reforms of the state I personally found very um, important. You know, getting the state's house in order, understanding where the state was tied to the different parts of the economy, forcing these different parts of the public sector to rationalize. Uh, you know, the government didn't even know when they took over in 2013 who they were paying out money to in the state-owned enterprise sector. Uh, and they have forced, by the way, this is probably one of the reasons conservatives are mad at them, <laughs> You know, over the last year, they've tried to get every um, state institution, uh, anything attached to a ministry, uh, everything basically, basically except the uh, IRGC, to uh, get paid through the central bank, get the salaries of the managers paid. Because of, uh, you may recall about a year ago, there was a huge um, scandal over highly paid uh, state employees, like a couple of people had huge salaries. So what did they do to solve that problem? They now made everybody, they're, they're making all institutions, public sector enterprises, uh, register with the central bank, and the central bank will pay, the, pay them, not some bank that they already have control over. That's a huge reform, by the way. Of course, they haven't completed it. They haven't completed it. And they're going to have to, you know, it requires coercion. Um, but, but that's interesting. I never read anything about this in the, in the Western press. Uh, but that's the kind of example of, of you know, the hard, very, very hard to get the get the political economy under control. And it's easy to use words like neoliberalism or corruption. And those are good. Those are words that you know certainly can be used among dissidents and activists and opposition people. But you know, as analysts, if we're trying to understand what's going on, we need to be a bit more honest about about the the wide package of reforms or policies that Rouhani has attempted. And what have been the results? I mean, many of them were dealing with the, the legacy of the previous regime. Okay, well, so, yeah, I think the take-home point is that we should be a bit humble and that actually this is not, this is not something new in Iran, that this is the pattern uh, of spontaneous protests, which then political uh, segments of the establishment try to jockey over, 
which in itself then transforms the political establishment, is the pattern which uh, I think astute observers of Iranian politics have been documenting since 1979. Interesting. So then, <clears throat> before we end the show today, I, I'm, you know, I want you to leave us with something to think about. Um, so something that you know, it's that we can sort of chew on and, you know, the protests are still going on. So something to think about as, as sort of these protests keep going on and, and, you know, more facts are emerging and, and, you know, whatever, whatever the outcomes might be. So leave us with something to think about. Well, uh, I just gave a 20 minute answer, <laughs> hopefully doing that. But you want something more? I mean, look, um, you know, the, again, this goes back to the class issue. This is a, you know, um, look at the, I, mean, I, I encourage people to go back and look at the people who think that they know about Iran. Go back and look at the videos. And don't look at, the, don't listen to the slogan, but watch the people. Look at their faces. Look at how they're dressing. Look at how they're looking at each other. I mean, videos, by the way, are horrible ways of understanding social movements because a video is set right in where the uh, the pro like the main militant group is. What you don't see in a video ever, because the video is usually focused on a, a attention space, like the tearing down of a poster, you know, or the clash between a, a cop and a person, right? Like the famous pictures that we see of of Black Lives Matter, for example. But, you know, as someone who's been in many, many protests in Iran and elsewhere, I can tell you, looking on the outside of the protest is where it's most interesting. Because it's on the outside of the protest, the boundary between the, the group of people who seem to be protesting and the group of people who are just watching them, that you can tell if the protest is gaining or losing strength overall. And so... As, I, 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 I encourage people to go back and watch some of the videos, at least now that we know they're documented. Of course, many of the videos turned out to be false. But, but a lot of them, of course, aren't. And it's funny because you see everybody looking around. People are, you know, look, okay, if you live in a town of 250,000, it's not a village. It's not, not cosmopolitan. This whatever this BS that we just heard about. However, it is kind of boring. And there's not, a lot, you know, you know, there's not going to be a protest every week. So it's something that you want to see. I mean, if something's going on downtown, you want to see it. This is, like, historic now, you know, in Desville, for example. I mean, you haven't been to Desville, I would imagine, Cena. Are you from Desville? Um, my parents are, my dad is. Okay, yeah. So he's asked them. Like, I was like, when something goes on in that town, everybody wants to go see it. So the pictures can show that. You know, you can actually go and look at the pictures and the videos and see some of them, the ones that aren't in pitch dark, and look on the outskirts. It's very interesting to see. So people are curious. Nobody's getting, you know, no one, there's no shots being fired. So you can kind of see it's, it's actually safe. And I remember seeing this in the Green Movement a lot. And I have a, I'll end with a story instead of a bold statement. Uh, you know, in 2009, uh, there was a big protest that was called for by, again, by who? We don't know. Well, certainly wasn't called for by Musavi, but there was about the, I think about the fifth or sixth day of the protest. And so somebody was calling for that the Protest. I'm uh, sorry. The uh, the rally and demonstration should march from the um, half to Tier Square, which is in the kind of shopping area, commercial area of Iran, down south to the bazaar, which is where you know kind of you know many smaller shops are, a lot of wholesalers are. And the idea was that this would then bring in 
the working class of the city to join up in the protest. And so, uh, and this was when, the, by the way, the protests were not being cracked down on that much. The first weekend, the Green Movement was also relatively peaceful, um, especially because the protests were so huge that, you know, it was difficult to cr- control the crowds in the first place. So the protests went south, and at some point, the, the cops, the, you know, the, uh, the riot police, not the Bassies, not all these other bogeymen, but the riot police, had formed kind of a, a line of riot control so that the protests then had to turn, so they couldn't keep going south. And many protesters considered that a win. They thought that this, they forced the state to respond. And nevertheless, it was on a well-known street, Jumhuri Islami Street, which is a street full of shops with, like, TV sales and shoes. So it is a place of where the, you know, petty bourgeoisie the shopkeepers work. And so I went there that day, and I stood on the other side of the protest, the other side of the riot police line, I watched hundreds of thousands of people go by me. And I stood with, um, you know, the shopkeepers. The whole Jomri Islami street was full of shopkeepers standing outside the shop. There wasn't, it was shoulder to shoulder watching the protests go by. And there was no, nobody was swinging a baton. Never nobody getting shot, at least not in this huge part that I was looking at. And yet, I did not see a single person on my side of the street cross the street. Somebody who was like working at a Samsung store selling cell phones, he didn't cross the street, right? So you know, you can also see that happening in the protests as well. That you can some people go, they're curious, it's interesting, but they don't always go, they don't always join up, right? So something, I mean, certainly a lot of people joined up in the last two weeks, but it crested, and it's 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 uh, this wave, this particular wave, seems to be ending. Nevertheless. it will have an effect. Uh, it will. I mean, as most protests do, they never have the intended effect uh, of the most militant members of those protests, who then often get disillusioned and claim that you know it wasn't worth it. But uh, you know, from the longer-term perspective, protest, protests in Iran, bottom-up movements in Iran, have mattered since 1979. Uh, will continue to matter, and uh, time will tell to see how much of a shakeup at the top uh, these protests will have caused. Well, thank you so much for that inter- informative talk. That was that was really good. Well, thanks. Well, uh, you know, I uh, like answering questions that I don't mind myself don't know the answer to. Many analysts tend to have the answer first, and then they get, then they move into the explanation. So they start with it's like murder mystery. They start with the ending, and then they write the rest. In my case, like I actually didn't know the answer to a lot of the questions that I worked on, like. What's the system of the? Oh, it's a system of social provision in Iran. What does the welfare state look like? I had heard so much about how religious organizations give poor all this money, but then I went and I went and looked at it, and it turned out not to be true. And I wrote a book about it. And then now, uh, you know, why do people even vote in Iran? How do they vote? How do they understand their vote? And how? What about people who don't vote? You know, Iran is a very interesting country. Huge turnout in elections. Sixty, seventy percent. There's no compulsion to vote in Iran. You don't have to vote. And yet 70% of the population do. And yet, as we found in our survey, and people can read in this ERAG report, most people don't really identify with any of the political factions in Iran. That doesn't mean to say that they're anti-state and they want you know, a different set, but they, maybe they do. Maybe they do. However, there's a very interesting dynamic here. You get low partisanship, to put it in a, in a political science term, partisanship. Like, I've always been a Democrat, my dad's a Democrat, blah, 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 this example. In Iran, you don't have that. 
and yet you have very high turnout in elections, right? I I don't think anybody understands the answer to that puzzle yet, and I'm willing to. I mean, if somebody gives an answer to that, I would not buy anything from them after that because this is a very very interesting phenomenon. It's been going on for a while, and I've never heard a good explanation of it, and uh, it's something to ponder. Well, thank you so much. That was um, Kevin Harris. Uh, he is. He has written uh, a report on voter behavior and political mobilization in Iran and a book, uh, Social Revolution, Politics, and the Welfare of State in Iran. So thank you so much. Thank you, Sina June.